0: Chapter 4. Closing and Negotiating Welcome to the fourth and final chapter of this book. By now, you've hopefully already picked up enough new knowledge that you'll see an impact on the quality of your sales pipelines. But sales pipelines do not close themselves. In this chapter, I'll focus almost purely on the art of negotiation and very little on closing. You shouldn't expect to find too many closing techniques or hacks because the majority out there are outdated, ineffective and unnecessary. If you apply the qualification strategies I've shared in this book and can deliver even half of a decent presentation, you've already done the hard work. All you need to do now is finish the job. How to get commitment. The sixth and final step of your presentation is, without doubt, the most important. It's where you must get the commitment from your prospect. Most salespeople are too afraid to ask for the commitment. They fear ruining the rapport and frightening off the prospect. In fact, most end meetings with a verbal agreement to conclude the next steps via email, followed by a sheepish question like, When can I call you back? Or, Is it okay I call you next week to follow up? If you use any of these strategies, you'll lose control of the sales process. As a result, you'll engage in a classic game of cat and mouse chasing your prospect for their decision. Not good. Whether the objective of your meeting is to get a signed contract, verbal agreement or schedule another meeting, you must not end the meeting without getting commitment on two things. First you must get commitment that your prospect sees the value in your solution. The value on offer must outweigh the financial investment required for the sale to happen. If you've used heat check questions throughout your presentation, you should already have a notion of whether or not your prospect sees the value, but you need to confirm this again once they've heard the financials involved. As mentioned earlier, you must always ask your prospect How does that sound after presenting your pricing? This is the only chance you'll get to assess how your prospect honestly feels about your solution. You must ask the question, shut up, switch on your senses and wait patiently for a response. Pay particular attention to how quickly or slowly your prospect responds, to the speed and general feel of their tone and pay close attention to the words they use. At the same time, you must also be aware that the same words said in a contrasting tone can mean entirely different things. For example, if your prospect responds with a slow hmm, yeah, it looks good, it could be cause for suspicion. Whereas a prospect using the same words in a faster, more positive tone should give you a more optimistic feeling. In my experience, Most prospects will give a positive response to your heat tech question at the end of the presentation. They will tell you your solution sounds great and has some really nice features and so on. But nice doesn't sell things. Remember, your prospect would often rather deceive you than risk hurting your feelings by telling you that your solution stinks. So regardless of the response, challenge it. If you get a negative response, challenge it. If the prospect sounds unsure, then state this to them by saying, you sound a little unsure, followed by silence. This will usually prompt the prospect into elaborating a little. If you get a positive response, challenge that too. In fact, challenge it just as much, if not more than a negative response. Below is an example of how such a conversation might sound. So when you ask, how does that sound? Prospect responds very quickly with, it sounds really great. You could respond by saying, what part in particular do you see the most value in? Let's say the prospect responds by saying, we love the online editor. You can then respond by saying, how will that help you specifically? The prospect may respond by saying, it just makes the process so much faster. And then you can use a question such as, so it will save you time and increase productivity then. Hopefully the prospect will then respond by saying, absolutely. Now, this approach may frighten the life out of you, but it's all just part and parcel of getting total confirmation that your prospect sees honestly the value in your solution. The other thing you need to get commitment on, once you're positive your prospect has no issue with the financials, is that you must get concrete commitment on what happens next. As mentioned earlier in the book, providing you've asked about how the decision process works, your prospect should have already told you most of the next steps. Now, the second your prospect confirms they see value, you must go into an assumptive closing mode and take complete control over the final part of the meeting by using the information they've given you to get commitment, which may sound as follows. That's great news. So, I guess the final steps then are that I'll send you a written proposal later on today. You'll then present that to your boss on Monday next week. Assuming he approves, you'll need to get that signed off by your finance director, which you said usually takes around seven days. So we should hopefully have the approval on the proposal no later than a week on Monday. Does that sound about right? Upon confirmation, great. Then I'll give you a call on Tuesday to make sure that everything's on track and hopefully we can start the onboarding process. Does the morning or afternoon work best for you? It's critical that you're assertive when confirming back these next steps and do not allow your prospect to dictate what happens next. At this point, your prospect may try to stall you by saying, we'll be in touch when we've made the decision. There's two potential ways you can handle this. The first one, hit them with a quick rebound question and ask them, what makes you say that? In a slightly shocked tone. They will then usually explain, why or withdraw their suggestion and agree to your proposed follow-up. The second one, ask if they're saying that because they're concerned about something happening that may interrupt the approval process. Regardless of how flawlessly you've executed on the sales process, I find there's always potential curveballs that can still stall the decision. So I recommend asking your prospect if there are any potential hurdles that may interrupt the process, regardless of whether they try to stall or not. How to get the signature. If the objective of your meeting is to close the sale, then you must ask for the sale. This is, without doubt, the most nerve-wracking moment of the entire sales process. You may find yourself paralyzed with self-doubt, Fighting the internal voice in your head, what's asking, but what if they say no? Only a calm and confident head will get you past this mental block. But a closing checklist may also help. There's two types of closing checklist there's ones for your eyes only, and checklists that you can run through with your prospect. The checklist for your eyes only may typically include the internal steps you go through to close a sale to ensure your deal gets approval by your manager, along with some closing techniques to assist you along the way. However, a checklist you can run through with your prospect is by far the best option. This checklist is otherwise known as the contract, or even better named as the paperwork. If you turn up for a meeting with the objective to close a sale, But do not bring along the paperwork. You can walk away at best with the dreaded verbal confirmation your prospect will go ahead. Having worked in new business sales for so many years, both as a salesperson and a manager, I can assure you that an opportunity sitting in the verbally agreed stage is the most dangerous one of all. Sadly, a verbal agreement isn't treated in the same loyal way as a gentleman's agreement was back in the 19th century. For the sale to be considered closed, you must get it in writing. If you're meeting face-to-face, bring the paperwork or order form. If you're meeting online, ensure you have the paperwork ready to send and complete in a digital form. The paperwork is by far the best weapon to pull out when it's time to close the sale. As soon as your prospect gives you the commitment on the finances involved and the value they see, respond by saying something like, Excellent! That's great to hear! If it's okay with you then I'd like to quickly run over the proposal to make sure we've covered everything you need and not made any mistakes. At this point you should begin running through the entire proposal confirming such things as the selected package, included features, number of users, payment terms, contract start dates and anything else you need in order to fulfill the paperwork. When this is done, confirm with the prospect that they're happy with everything and instruct them on what they need to do in order to go ahead whether that's signing on the dotted line or replying to your email with acceptance your confirmation could be worded as follows great then well if you're happy to proceed then all you need to do is respond to my email with the words i agree and we can get your account set up right away the above strategy may be too long-winded if you work in transactional sales if this is the case I would just advise you to get on with it and just ask the prospect, would you like to go ahead? As soon as they confirm they see the value or skip asking altogether and just use an assumptive closing techniques along the line of one of these examples. Would you like to pay via credit or debit card? Which address would you like the product to be shipped to? What start date would you like me to put on the paperwork? Who should we contact regarding onboarding? Whether you work with transactional sales or not, The importance of sales silence at this point is more critical than ever. There is nothing more painful than witnessing a salesperson close a deal only to talk themselves out of it because they couldn't shut up. How to negotiate mutually beneficial agreements. When you heat check to see how your prospect feels about your solution or when you hand them the pen to sign the paperwork, There's a chance they may catch you by surprise and begin to negotiate. When I started building my first workshop on sales negotiation, I was surprised by the high number of courses and workshops that were available. The biggest shocker, though, was discovering that they were almost all designed for two scenarios. Firstly, negotiating pay rises with your employer, and secondly, Negotiating terms and prices with a supplier. And it made me wonder if sales prospects were better trained in the skill of negotiating than most salespeople. It made a lot of sense when I thought about it. I've been in and witnessed so many negotiations during my career and they almost always end in one of two ways. Either the customer wins the negotiation and the sale is closed. Or nobody wins the negotiation and the sale is lost. The salesperson rarely wins both the negotiation and the sale. Whether you love it or hate it, if you want to be world class at sales, you're going to need to get good at negotiating mutually beneficial agreements. This means closing sales that are good for you, your company and your clients. You must always aim for a win-win situation for some important reasons. Firstly, if you charge your clients a high premium for an average solution, they will have zero tolerance for any imperfections. And as a result, your customer service or support teams will dislike dealing with your clients, who in return will become dissatisfied. Secondly, if you give a hefty discount to win new business, your client will come to expect the same when renewing or buying from you again. This will infuriate your account managers or retention teams and make it impossible for you to make any real profit from repeat business. You'll also run the risk of your client spreading the word of what a great deal you gave to them. Thirdly, in my experience, the clients who pay the least are almost always the worst. They're resource-heavy, resulting in your company making little profit from the initial sale. These clients often also expect the same level of service as your enterprise customers too. When dealing with these high maintenance clients, your tolerance levels will quickly dissolve, especially after they've paid their invoice. The client will justify their high demands due to the premium investment they made, and you'll justify your refusal to meet those demands due to the heavy discount you gave them. Either way, both parties will justify their actions in a way that doesn't relate to each other, and the relationship is doomed from the beginning. It's important to always look at the things from your client's perspective and point of view. You may feel like they paid a ridiculously low price, but maybe they never really had the budget for your solution in the first place, so the investment to them was a big one. Mutually beneficial agreements are the key to creating long-lasting relationships with your clients. They result in happy customers, motivated employees, and higher revenues. Negotiating with children Since becoming a father for the first time back in 2010, I can honestly say my sales and coaching skills have been put to the test on a whole new level. I remember being in a negotiation scenario with my son Alexander back when he was five years old. He was going through, let's call it a testing phase. And I'd been strategizing with my wife the night before about how we could best handle his temperament in certain situations. The following evening, I got the chance to apply that strategy. We've always had a set bedtime routine in the evenings with Alexander. We aim to have him ready and in bed by 7pm which means we have to get things rolling by around about 6.30pm to leave room for the explosive reaction what comes. Part of our new strategy was to give Alexander a short pre-warning five to ten minutes before the bedtime routine was to begin. And this was where I began. On this particular evening, Alexander was happily playing with his toy cars in the hallway. I approached and gave him a pleasantly toned warning. Five minutes before it's time to get ready for bed, Alexander, I said. Five minutes? That's not much, he yelled. Luckily, Alexander wasn't quite at the age where he fully understood time, but he was at the stage where he would negotiate everything. Okay, then, I said. You can have two minutes. Knowing full well his response would be to negotiate an extra minute or two. As expected, he settled for three minutes and continued to play. Phase one, complete. I had successfully managed to negotiate an agreement seven minutes better than I had aimed for, and had more importantly avoided the explosive tantrum we had come to expect. Bravo, Daddy. Also knowing that three minutes feels more like thirty seconds in a kid's head, I let Alexander play for a couple of extra minutes before approaching him again. Okay, Alexander, it's time to go to the bathroom now, I said. To which I got a super aggressive, no, in response. I took a deep breath, smiled, and calmly knelt down to his level. And in a lone tone, I said, hey, listen, we agreed on three minutes before, and I've allowed you almost ten. Ten, he said in a shocked tone. Yes, I replied. Okay, then, he said. And off we walked to the bathroom to get ready. I looked over to my wife with a huge smile and said, Did you hear that? I'll be using that one again next time. The negotiation was complete. Both parties were happy and I had a successful recipe. Or at least I thought so. A couple of days later, I found myself in a very similar situation. Alexander had just started playing with his building blocks in the living room and I calmly walked in fully prepared for action and gave him his 10-minute warning. Only this time there was no further negotiation. Alexander smashed his building blocks to pieces, sending them flying across the living room floor. And he spent the next 10 minutes kicking and screaming. So, here we have a story of two similar negotiations, approached with the same strategy, but with two different outcomes. Like a story with two morals. The first one is that every negotiation is unique. There is no one winning formula to ensure you win every negotiation on your terms. You can master tips, tricks and techniques, but the outcome is often never the same. The second moral is that emotions drive decisions. If you've been in sales for long enough, you've probably witnessed a prospect get angry after you've told them the cost of your solution. This emotional response can often come down to the expectation they had about the cost. Maybe they'd seen a lower price on your website, or maybe they just made a foolish assumption. You never know. There was one small critical difference in the two almost identical scenarios I just shared about Alexander. In the first negotiation, I approached him after he'd been happily playing for some time with his trucks. He would have liked to play a little longer, but had no big plans. In the second negotiation, I approached him just a few minutes after he'd started to construct something with his building blocks. This time, he had expectations of playing a little longer and maybe building whatever he had planned to build to completion. I then came along and destroyed those expectations, resulting in an emotional reaction that essentially ended the negotiation. Sure. I could have avoided or stopped his emotional outburst by offering him a better deal, but the result would have been a tired and grumpy child in the morning. The child wins the negotiation and daddy wins the sale. But it's a bad deal for both parties in the long run. When reality doesn't align with our expectations, we often react in an emotionally negative way. It's a common human error you'll need to navigate around with your prospects. So next time you enter a negotiation, have Alexander in mind and remember to treat every situation as a unique one and control your own emotions so you can stay calm and work your magic. Negotiation Cultures I was lucky enough during my career as a sales professional to win clients in over 60 different countries. I've also trained and coached thousands of people in 128 countries and worked with a variety of international sales teams in various industries. This experience taught me many valuable lessons about how important culture is when negotiating. Certain nations have particular negotiation cultures, and so do some companies. For example, when selling to many of the African nations, you should always expect to negotiate, it's almost customary to do so. I've also experienced the same in the Arab countries as well as India, Pakistan, Italy and a few others. Many people fail to respect cultures, including many companies and the salespeople who attempt to break into international markets. Whether you're selling on the international market or locally in your own country, you're going to be dealing with prospects from a variety of cultures. There are no guarantees the person you're trying to sell to was born in that country, so their negotiation style may be driven by another culture much different to your own. I learned from my own painful experiences how adaptive one needs to be when negotiating in different cultures. In the beginning, I would take my prospect's low starting point in the negotiation as an insult, get all emotional, end the call, and close the opportunity down as lead lost, no budget. Heavens knows how much business I lost back then as a result of my immaturity. I've also had the pleasure of working with some of Europe's fastest growing startups too and witnessed how quickly a culture of heavy discounting can be born and how costly it can be. The culture of winning new clients at all costs in the startup phase is a lot of fun, but the negotiation culture of heavy discounting is an expensive and hard habit to kick. There's certainly no mistaking why companies such as Apple or Tesla are so successful in winning and retaining clients despite fierce competition from lower-priced suppliers. They do this by offering high-quality products and services and by almost always maintaining a strict pricing policy. Tesla CEO Elon Musk hit the nail on the head in 2006 when he'd heard some of his salespeople had been offering discounts on new cars. In a company email he wrote, If you can't explain to a customer who paid full price why another customer didn't without being embarrassed, then it's not right. I couldn't have put it any better myself. I used to give a very similar message to my teams when I was a sales leader and I stick by it today. A seemingly harmless discount can appear worthwhile when it gets you above target but when that one client starts spreading the word it can quickly become a costly error. I remember one of my past employers creating a win at all costs strategy to get the top 10 brand names on board in particular verticals. In one of those verticals we won one of the UK's biggest retailers at a heavily discounted rate I also remember the day the second biggest brand in that same vertical was about to become a client at full price until they brought up the fact they knew how much the other client had paid us. That one discount alone cost the company thousands in lost revenue. And that was just one example. So beware of how much culture influences your negotiations and discount at your own peril. How to spot a negotiator There's lots of signs that signal the beginning of a negotiation and it's important you become aware of these to avoid treating them either as an objection or rejection. In my experience, the signs commonly used by the prospect to try and negotiate a better deal are as follows. 1. The prospect may send you clear buying signals. A well-oiled negotiator knows how the seller's brain functions. They know that if they send you enough buying signals, you'll smell the sale and the discounting will begin. During my live sales negotiation workshops, I often show a picture of a cute fluffy teddy bear. The bear is meant to resemble that fluffy feeling you get in your stomach when you think you've hooked a prospect who sounds ready to buy. What usually happens as a result is you drop your guard and start to throw in some free extras because you're so happy. By this point, the prospect has you in an entirely vulnerable position. You must pull yourself together next time you feel that fluffy feeling. Your prospect's flirtatious buying signals can be nothing more than a way of buttering you up to see what deal they can get. Don't fall for it and burn the bear. Number two. Another common negotiation sign is when your prospect raises objections. The most obvious example might be when they say something like, we feel the price is too high, or we've got a better price somewhere else. Nonsense, always. If your prospect has a better price somewhere else, why are they still talking to you? Use the objection handling strategy to isolate the smokescreen and progress to handle the real objection. This statement is often nothing more than a shakedown to get a better price. Number three. I've worked with a lot of software companies during my time, and another common smokescreen objection that can signal the start of a negotiation is when a prospect starts to nitpick about certain missing features. The average salesperson usually has a good comeback. They promise to speak to the development team to get the feature in the next release, or come up with a perfect workaround. Smart enough, but a complete waste of time. When your prospect starts to nitpick, especially on multiple occasions, use the objection handling strategy to isolate the smokescreen again. More often than not, these missing features are of little value and importance, and the prospect won't be able to explain why they're of any importance at all. Remember though, if the prospect raises objections about anything that puts them in a position of being the owner of your solution, it's a buying signal. It's not the start of a negotiation. If the prospect is at the stage where they're reading the detailed terms and conditions of your offer, there's little need to negotiate unless you're negotiating brick wall objections, such as strict company regulations about payment terms, property right issues, or something similar. There are, however, certain exceptions to this. From time to time, you'll have to get approval on your sale from people who have different motives than your primary contact. Now, as frustrating as this can be, you must stay calm and treat these people with respect. An individual in a financial department has one goal, to save the company money. If your sale needs approval from someone in finance, it's often because it exceeds a certain amount. So, when your prospect tells you they need approval from finance, be prepared to negotiate, because this is often why these processes are in place. Another common hurdle in the approval process can come from legal departments, whose common goal is to protect their company from making bad or risky deals. In my experience, getting past the legal department can either be a breeze or an absolute nightmare. Some legal teams will request a detailed list of large, small, and sometimes strange contract amendments, whereas others will request few to none. In my experience, most of the changes are negotiable. I had a new client query 14 different areas in my contract not long ago, and I agreed to amend just two. You must not allow yourself to become overwhelmed when dealing with finance or legal departments. A defensive and argumentative response to innocent requests will get you nowhere. You'll find that some people just need educating in how your solution works. I once had someone from a legal team request that his company get exclusive rights for the software they were about to purchase. I had to explain to him that they would have to buy our company before I could get that request changed. If you can make the required legal changes, then do so. If you can't, then explain this to them in an unemotional way. A stubborn, inflexible approach to contract negotiations is a winning strategy for losing the sale. The signed contract is too close. Number 4. When a prospect tells you specifically how much they have to spend, this is commonly a bluff. In my experience, if the prospect says they have only 200 pounds to spend, they most likely have 3, 4 or even 500 pounds. The figure given could either be an estimate of what they feel your solution is worth or a rough calculation of what the prospect estimates to be a good starting point in the negotiation. This is again a buying signal and with a little creative thinking you should be able to handle it without any trouble. Sadly though it's all too easy to give in and close a quick and easy sale and that's usually what the average salesperson does. The prospect wins and the sale is closed. This is a result of fear. You fear if you don't give in and let your prospect win, they'll walk away and all of your hard work will be for nothing. What most salespeople fail to consider, though, is how much time and effort the prospect has invested into the sale and how badly they may want your solution. By the time you've reached the final stages of the sales process, your prospects have often invested just as much, if not more, time than you in getting the sale approved. On top of the time spent talking with you, your prospect may have dedicated hours to researching and testing solutions, getting budgets approved, coordinating with other team members and stakeholders, and much more. Trust me, they won't walk away if they want your solution. If they do, it's because they didn't see the value in the first place. If your prospect tells you they only have X amount to spend Repeat it back and paraphrase where possible. Then hit them with any of the following questions where applicable. Will it help if I can spread the payments for you? How about starting on the lower package and upgrading later? When will you get more budget allocated again? Which other departments could benefit from the solution? Or last but not least, what do you suggest we do now? Most importantly, you must be prepared to walk away. The idea of doing so at this stage in the sales process may seem outrageous to you, but unless you can learn to hold your cards tight to your chest, you'll never win a negotiation and will leave money on the table every time you close a sale. Number five, the smart, direct and fast moving negotiator will almost always ask, is that your best price? this is a huge buying signal a quick rebound question like what makes you ask is a smart response when followed by silence the question will often prompt your prospect to explain exactly why they asked and the most typical responses i hear are because that's what your competitor offered me or i feel it's too expensive or they may just say i'm just asking either way You've isolated the real objection and will have a better idea of how to proceed. Number 6. Another strategic approach used only by master negotiators is to ask for more than they need. These negotiation yodas know perfectly well how to tap into the average salesperson's emotions. And they do it by creating excitement and they create excitement by requesting your biggest package with the most number of users or whatever other add-ons you have, resulting in a potentially huge looking sale. The prospect's objective is to see how flexible you are with negotiating the pricing. Their strategy is to get you excited by the potential size of the sale. They will then negotiate the best deal for that package before dropping down to a lower option. To avoid this situation, you must ensure you're the one recommending which package your prospect needs. If they start asking about a higher package, beware of the dollar signs that may cloud your judgment and re-qualify the needs of the prospect. It will serve you well to treat every prospect with a cautious and somewhat pessimistic approach. Number 7. Another common sign of a prospect who is negotiating is the constant mentioning of your competitors. These prospects will often not be rushed into making any decisions and will be sure to let you know they're speaking to your competitors. You must not allow the name dropping of your competition to trigger your discount mode. I refuse to enter negotiations with such prospects. In my experience, they often end up being poor clients with no loyalty who will do the same again next year. Focus on your solution and treat the prospect as if the competition was not even involved. In the event you do enter into a negotiation with these prospects, be sure to give them a buy right now at this cost ultimatum to avoid them playing you against your competitors. Number eight. You'll be blown away at how easy it is to make friends when you work in sales. And you'll also be blown away at how quickly those friends want something from you too. Getting too friendly with your prospects will make negotiating difficult. Your prospects know that if they get friendly with you, it's more likely you'll give them a good deal. If you fail to draw the line between your personal and professional relationships, you're asking for trouble. I genuinely believe most prospects are just being friendly without an agenda. However, there are always a small few that ruin it for others, so make sure to stay on your guard. Number nine. A common tactic used by the smart negotiator is to play the lack of authority card. This strategy can be utilised by both decision makers and non-decision makers. If you've not already uncovered the stakeholders involved at this stage of the sales process, then you've got your work cut out for you. I won't suggest a strategy for this scenario. I'd rather have you struggle, feel pain, and be motivated next time to qualify using the process questions covered earlier in the book. I believe it's called uh, being cruel to be kind. You're in serious trouble if you enter a negotiation with a non-decision maker. If you're lucky, your primary contact will help you. If you're unlucky, they will play you. It's easier said than done, but try at all costs to negotiate with the decision maker directly. I suggest you all get together on a call, communicate via text, email, chat, whatever, so long as you negotiate with the right person directly. When you negotiate via a go-between, it prolongs the process, gives more power to the decision maker and leaves you in the dark about how your opponent is feeling emotionally. It's important to know if your last offer enraged them or not before making your next move. If you know or have a suspicion you're already dealing with the decision maker, this could be the start of a negotiation or it could be a stall. A prospect who feels pressured into making a decision may pull the I need to speak to my partner strategy as a way of buying more time. This is good. It tells you their brain is in full working order and they need a little time to ensure they're not making a rash decision. If you're selling a fluffy nice-to-have solution, You may be in trouble here though. If you give your prospect time to process their decision, it's likely they'll disappear, never to be seen again. But if you believe your prospect can get value from your solution, and you feel you've done enough to earn the right to ask for the business, grab their tail and pull them back in. Ask them a question such as, apart from the final sign-off, is there anything else that's stopping you from going ahead today? What you want to do now is take them through those commitment steps again, ensuring they see value in your solution. If you sense pricing is a concern, bring it up. Ask them if the payment terms are in line with their company policy or expectations. There's plenty of ways to fish out the real objective behind the lack of authority card. But if you truly know you're dealing with someone who can sign off, it's time to get cheeky. The best and most direct way of cutting to the chase is just by saying, you're not saying that just to get rid of me, are you? You must say this in a direct yet friendly tone, and it must be followed by an instant silence, so you can monitor how your prospect responds and decide on what to do next. Most salespeople fear using this approach with gatekeepers, let alone decision makers. They fear the stakes are too high at this stage of the sales process, but I can tell you from personal experience, I've used this approach time and time again during my career, and it separates the real prospects from the potential time wasters every time. Your prospect will most likely respond in one of three ways. They'll either laugh and likely begin to negotiate, or they'll innocently and repeatedly confirm they're not trying to get rid of you, which can often signal guilt, or they'll respond angrily, and the call will end shortly after, in which case... They've just saved you some valuable wasted time. Fear will hold you back in sales and in life. If you lack the confidence and ability to call your prospects bluff, you'll lose the negotiation every time, even if you win the sale. If there's one strong belief you should have when negotiating with the decision maker, it's that if they're negotiating for your solution, it's because they want it. So, learn to negotiate with confidence and use fear to your advantage. In the words of Harvey Specter from Suits, play the player, not the game. How to handle beliefs and emotions? I listened to a call recently where the prospect was ready to go ahead but only on the condition that the contract terms were adjusted to be more like other modern software providers. The prospect was referring to the 12-month commitment and upfront payment terms required by the supplier. He not only wanted a month-to-month contract, but also wanted to pay in monthly installments too. The salesperson was stumped. He knew there was no chance in hell his manager would approve this, but didn't want to tell the prospect through fear of losing the sale. The salesperson did well to remain composed and asked some questions to try and isolate the objection. But this was always going to be tough due to a couple of reasons. The first one is that the salesperson had not picked up on the fact that he was not dealing directly with the decision-maker. By carefully listening to the way the prospect was wording his terms, and that he was bringing them up on a follow-up call, I could hear and feel he was the middleman. By not dealing directly with the decision-maker, the salesperson also now had to contend with an emotional middleman who was trying to do the negotiating without any power. This scenario can often make it difficult to resolve any situation. The second issue was that the hidden decision maker obviously had a firm belief about how software terms should be, which was made clear in the hard tone in which his objection was relayed. Challenging people's beliefs can be a dangerous game. If not done with a cautious and professional approach, the emotional reaction will make negotiating impossible. As a coach, I challenge people's beliefs on a daily basis. It's often not an easy job and can sometimes take multiple sessions to achieve, but the breakthrough session always makes it worthwhile. In my experience as a salesperson and as a coach, strong beliefs often come out of fear. So rather than trying to challenge the belief of your prospect, try to investigate into its root cause. When the prospect and salesperson have opposing beliefs, it usually ends up with locked horns. The salesperson pushes their belief on the prospect to try and change their belief, but the prospect just pushes back. This often ends in an emotional battle of beliefs between two sides that refuse to seek to understand each other. As a sales professional, you must learn to respect the beliefs of your prospect and control your own emotions. You can only influence someone when you try to understand their version of reality. So, if a prospect comes up with an objection which is clearly a strong belief, demonstrate your good listening skills and show empathy in your tone. Ask questions to get the prospect to elaborate on where their belief comes from and dig deeper into the past to try and source the root cause. A prospect who fears a 12-month commitment could have been stung in the past. So listening to you ramble on about why you have a 12-month contract in place isn't going to change that belief. But maybe offering customer references or referring to your credible investors will act as a more important safety network will work. Another common root cause of beliefs can be word of mouth. Try and think how many products you wouldn't consider purchasing purely based on the word of someone else. For some people, this belief could be driven by parents, whereas others could be driven by something they half read once in an online forum. Whatever the belief, and however deep the root cause, you must put aside your views, respect those of your prospect, and master your strategic questioning techniques to learn how to influence people to your way of thinking. When to begin the negotiation. Most negotiations happen at the end of the sales process, either when you discuss pricing or after you send a proposal. As a salesperson, you can be ready for these negotiations by preparing your responses and learning new techniques, but this will only work to a certain extent. The ultimate preparation is understanding that the negotiation begins from the first contact you make with a prospect and ends. When the customer pays their invoice. You must negotiate until the money is in the bank. Too many salespeople make the mistake of leaving themselves short at the negotiation stage. They hint at discount too early, offer the best deal in the first proposal, and genuinely think that honesty is the best policy. A prospect who knows what they want will begin to negotiate early in the sales process. These negotiation masters are great at being your best friend, tactical in how to ask for various pricing options, and ruthless when it comes to finalizing the deal. As already mentioned, some prospects will push you for pricing information early on, and others will start to nitpick at your missing features. These tactics are often just all part of the game plan to weaken your defenses. Most salespeople fall for these tricks time and time again, feeling almost guilty and obliged to give the prospect the best deal possible to get them to sign the contract. But the negotiation doesn't always end here. I've witnessed plenty of scenarios where the signed contract was in place, the invoice was sent, but the negotiations were not yet complete. In larger organizations, there's often a lot of departmental structure and policies in place. Sometimes your primary contact knows how to navigate these, other times they don't. I once spent several weeks chasing an unpaid invoice from a very well known brand in the United States, only for their accounts payable to attempt to renegotiate the payment terms when they finally bothered to respond. There's been a lot of press over the past several years about how larger organisations take advantage of the smaller ones when it comes to buying services from them. A lot of it criticizes these organizations and as a salesperson I can honestly say it used to drive me crazy until one day I decided to put a stop to it by playing them at their own game. That large organization I mentioned earlier were already 10 days overdue on their payment when their accounting team said to me, unless we can pay with American Express you'll have to resend the invoice and go through the 45 day payment period again. I took a deep breath. Remained calm and built up the courage to say, if you can't pay via debit or credit card today, we'll have to deactivate your services right away. It was incredible how quickly someone just happened to find a MasterCard that could be used right away, despite claiming in our previous conversation they didn't have one. To succeed at every level in a negotiation, you have to be prepared to lose the sale. If you do not stand firm with your terms, people will take advantage of you and you'll never fulfill your financial potential. Start every sales conversation with negotiation in mind and you'll outwit even the best negotiators. Part of your preparation for negotiating is your qualification strategy. If you follow the guidance in this book, you'll always qualify the real needs of your prospects and fully understand how important those needs are giving you the upper hand every time. If you allow the prospect to bully you into rushing through the sales process and skip these crucial qualification steps, you'll be left butt-naked with no defense. There are no fast, easy sales. You must follow the same rigid steps of the sales process every time to ensure you're ready for every negotiation scenario. The Happy Medium Whether it's Del Boy from Only Fools and Horses negotiating the best deal on some dodgy briefcases or Martin Luther King negotiating for civil rights, there's always been an unwritten rule that a negotiation can be agreed when both parties meet in the middle. Maybe it was my mother always taking me to flea markets on a Sunday, or maybe it was something else, but I always knew from a young age that if I wanted 5 pounds, I should ask for 10. When I was around 10 years old, I used to go sifting through the stinging nettles at our local golf club every weekend to find the stray balls, which me and my best friend Sean would go and sell to the wealthy guy who lived on the estate around the corner. After just a couple of negotiations with him, we learnt pretty quickly to sit down and calculate what he would offer us before knocking on his door so we could better prepare for the next negotiation and meet somewhere closer to the middle. So, if there is an unwritten rule that all negotiations should end in the middle and a 10-year-old boy like I was, knew how to master using it to my advantage, why is it that most salespeople fail? To find out your average order value, calculate the amount of revenue you've made and divide it by the number of deals. To calculate your happy medium, you need to work out the middle ground between your most expensive solution and your least expensive solution. For instance, if your most expensive solution costs £50 per month and your least expensive costs £20 per month, then your happy medium is £35 per month. Now I've done this exercise with almost every client I've worked with and never once has the average order value been close to the happy medium. In fact, it instead always seems to land on the middle ground between the happy medium and the least expensive solution. And this is for one reason. Almost all salespeople start at the happy medium because they're afraid of trying to sell their most expensive solution for fear of frightening off the prospect. As a result, the prospect always gets a great deal at a rate 25% lower than it should have been. Start high, end happy. As a manager, I always used to teach my sales team to negotiate with everything apart from money. If you can do that, I told them, you'll increase your order values. It's easy to forget all of the different negotiation tools at your disposal, but Discount seems to be the only one that most salespeople have been taught to use. It is absolutely crazy. Negotiating is like a game of cards. You or your company get to choose those cards. Then you need to keep them close to your chest and use them if and when needed. Apart from cost, Think about what other elements of your solution you can use as a negotiation tool. What options can you offer your prospect that doesn't cut into your profits? It's not always easy to think out of the box on this one, so let me throw a few ideas your way. Number one, payment terms. Most companies offer the option to pay up front, monthly or quarterly. You may also have the choice to offer 30, 45 or 60 day payment terms or something. Or you could offer the option to delay the invoice being sent, thus offering a free period of usage. One of my favorite and probably one of the most effective strategies is the option to provide a discount for upfront payment. But to make this work though, you must increase your pricing by 20% if the prospect wishes to pay monthly. This way, you don't lose 20% of your profit if they pay upfront. So, if you offer a solution that costs £600 per year, quote your prospect that figure, and if they ask to pay monthly, increase the cost by 20%, making it £60 per month and totaling £720 per year. You'll find that most prospects will choose to pay upfront and save the £120. While we're on the subject of monthly and annual pricing, I would also like to highly advise you to avoid using the method of quoting monthly figures to your prospect if you require a 12 month commitment with upfront payment. Misleading your prospects will only infuriate them and potentially lose you the sale. If you require such terms, you must state your price annually. Do not tell someone it's 10 pound per month if they must pay 120 pounds upfront. It's just stupid. Number two, contract length. If you sell a solution that requires a period of commitment, Play around with this and consider adjusting your price to reflect the duration of the agreement. For example, if you have a prospect who doesn't want to commit to a 12-month contract, offer them a three-month option with a substantial hike in the cost. You'll find that most prospects will reconsider the 12-month commitment rather than throw money down the drain. Some prospects will also have a fear that their price will increase in the second year of their agreement. You may feel obliged to add a term in their contract term that promises this won't happen because you can smell the sale. However, offering a 24-month package to retain the same rate is a much better option that will satisfy the prospect and result in an ideal win-win scenario. The third option, features and packages. Most prospects want the best package with the most features, even if they don't need them all be sure to use the option of moving your prospect either up or down in the package options or consider stripping out some features to test their resolve on the cost. For example, if your prospect tells you they can't get the budget approved for your most expensive solution, suggest they start on the lower option with the possibility of upgrading at a later point, but be sure to mention what they will lose in painful detail. If you're in the particular scenario where you can add or strip out certain features, take early notes about which ones your prospect needs for the solution to be of most value to them. You can then use this feature as a winning card in the negotiation stage, if and when needed. Something such as an API feature could be a great example if you sell software, potentially removing the option of a huge range of integrations that could save time and increase efficiency for your prospect. Number four, human resources. If you provide resources such as free or premium training, technical support, or customer success programs, use them to your advantage. Your business should be set up in a way that it can sustain providing every new client with these services, but be sure to check your house rules first. You'll be amazed at how much your clients still value having access to training and support to get help with getting them started with their investment. Your human resources can be the golden ticket to winning a negotiation and retaining happy clients. People still value human interaction with their suppliers a lot, so don't underestimate this winning card. There's likely a host of other great ace cards you can offer your prospects, so take some time to sit down with yourself or your colleagues and list them all. The more cards you have, the more flexible you'll seem to your prospects and the more win-win negotiations you'll achieve. It's also critical that you always remember to get something in return from your prospect when negotiating. It could be something small like a testimonial for your website or something much more valuable like a signed agreement by the end of the week. I like to call this the if I can technique. So, If your prospect asks for a concession, you respond by saying something along the lines of, if I can get that approved for you, are you happy to go ahead today? You must always ensure any discounts or special agreements you made have a deadline. I've also found that having a non-disclosure term in your proposal that states your prospect cannot disclose the discounted offer to anyone is a brilliant psychological trick that can create urgency by making your offer appear unique. By listing all of your Ace Cards, hopefully you'll come up with a new set of negotiation tools and your list will open your eyes to the huge amount of potential revenue you're leaving on the table every time you close a sale. Your Ace Cards are not only negotiation tools. Many of them are potential add-on options that you should include in your proposal for those prospects who need them to. If you keep starting your negotiations at the happy medium, Going in with your typical no-frills, medium-sized solution, you'll never make any money and will be poorly positioned to negotiate. You need to tailor your solution to fit the needs of your prospect, so it gives them maximum value. Now, I'm not suggesting that you boycott your integrity, and I'm not going to contradict my own definition of sales either. Selling is the act of helping and sometimes persuading people to invest in a solution you believe they can get value from, and I'm positive you believe the large proportion of your prospects can get value from much more than you're actually offering them today. If you believe your prospect can value from your most expensive solution with all of your add-ons, you're doing both yourself and your prospect a disservice by not offering them these options. Your proposals should also include your preferential terms too, such as upfront payment, a 12-month commitment, paid premium support and upgrades, and so on. If you honestly believe this is what will bring great value to your prospect, then why wouldn't you offer it to them? If you want to increase your sales revenue and be perfectly positioned to enter a negotiation with anyone, you must start high so that you can end the negotiation happily even if you have to negotiate with your primary contact, their CEO and the finance director. By starting high, you'll ensure you have acres of space to be flexible enough to close the sale and still make a good profit. You must block out the fear that your prospect will run away if you offer them your most expensive solution, because if you don't try, you'll never know. The truth is, one or two of your prospects may run away, The amount of additional revenue you'll make from those who don't will far outweigh the loss practice learn and succeed so that's it now you know everything there is to know about how to become an elite sales professional and be more successful than you've ever imagined it takes a flexible ambitious and determined individual to succeed in sales And those in sales understand that the pain of failure is just a part of the journey to the top. Sadly though, your brain will only retain a tiny proportion of what you've learned in this book, so you must pay me to be your personal success coach to get full value from your investment. (laughs) Only joking. Although I would love to have you as a client, there is another way to get maximum value from this book. The tips, tricks, strategies, and techniques I've shared with you are the result of many years of learning. I made the very same mistakes as you when I started out in sales, and it took years of practice, execution, and failure to get them right. But like you, I took to reading sales books to fast track my skills, and it worked, but only after I had returned to my favorite books time and time again. Now this book, like any other, will probably be as useful as a chocolate fire guard if you read it just once because you'll retain very little of the value it offers. My final recommendation to you is to schedule a calendar reminder for this time next year to pluck this book from its dusty place of rest and read it all over again. I'm sure you'll be pleasantly surprised at the amazing new content your more experienced sales brain will rediscover. Thanks again for investing your time into reading my book. I sincerely hope it finds its way onto your favourites list and I hope you'll recommend it to others. So, until this time next year, I wish you all the success in your career and I will leave you with my favourite words of wisdom to remember. You're good, get better. Take care.